Hello, MJ here. If you can't tell from the title already, this episode contains discussions about sex and sex ed. Take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind? Your diet? Perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink, or smoke? Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes. But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being. Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us. Welcome to Everything is Public Health. Everything is Public Health. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. My name is MJ. And I'm Cass. Today, we're going to talk about something that is from a very awkward period in all of our lives, I assume, which is the puberty period. But we're going to talk about sex ed today. How was your sex ed? So I had sex ed in fifth and sixth grade, and it was a lot. There were so many details. I, I still remember in sixth grade, we took a whole week. The boys and the girls were split and we talked about all sorts of different body functions and it actually was so, so much detail. I found the whole idea of sex absolutely disgusting and couldn't understand why anyone would ever do it ever. <laughs> and they made us watch video of like women giving birth and like, like all the things that were coming out. I think I've seen the same video. <laughs> and it was, it was a lot. It was like, I never, mm -mm, that's gross. Never doing that. Too much detail. That is quite young. Like, I don't think I've gotten those until like seventh, seventh or eighth grade or sometimes even like ninth grade. Um, did you remember abstinence being a part of it? It was, but in the sense of like, hey, the safest way to like avoid pregnancy or to avoid these scary STIs is to not have sex. But we definitely talked a lot about if you're going to engage in these things, like here are different ways that you can be safe. Like we actually talked about like the different stages of like intercourse, like petting you know no. touching yeah like all that kind of stuff and like why, why and then, <laughs> that was not a part of my curriculum what did you go through <laughs> you know the goal was so hiv aids was a big thing at the time yeah just happened. and so i think there was a lot of focus on not telling us not to have sex which i appreciated i mean they they really turned me off of that with all the details that they provided, um, and like sort of graphic information. But it was like, sex isn't the only thing. There are other activities that you can engage in, but it's really, it's best to wait. But if you're not going to wait, like, here's how you can be safer, basically. So a very comprehensive and I think the location matters is in Seattle, yes? In the Seattle, yeah, the suburbs of Seattle. Yeah. Suburb of Seattle, but in a relatively liberal area and state. And my experience was very similar, but definitely not that early. And definitely no talk about the other parts of the sexual process. It was very like clinical and straightforward. So I'm surprised that you got that part of the curriculum. Well, and also think about like when I watch movies now that are sort of quote unquote age appropriate for kids. And then I watch movies from when I was their age that were age appropriate. 
we were exposing kids to a lot more stuff. That's true. In the 80s and 90s. You know, I, I think people have talked about kids are kids are seeing way more things these days. Well, sure, on the internet, right? Like on the internet, you can see all sorts of things. But like what the, the movies and the shows that I was watching as a kid, like we have to be careful about what we show the kids sometimes. Because I'm like, oh, I love this movie when I was a kid. And we start watching. I'm like, oh, okay. So I think it was it was a different time. We're talking 20... Oh my god, more than 20 years ago. Oh my god, I'm so old. 30 years ago. <laughs> my my mindset is still stuck in like the 2000 mindset. So, if you say 20 years ago, oh, I was like, "Oh, the 90s." But no, 20 years ago is the 2000s now, which is insane. Well, that's what I was when I said 20 years ago, I meant the early 90s. So, there you go. That tells you my mindset. Yeah. But it's 30 30 40 years ago. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah, we're both aging. <laughs> You, you're like a tiny baby person. What do you mean we're both aging? I just hit a milestone of 25. So <laughs> that. Is- so I had this detailed sexual education before you were even alive. So there you go. You know what? Touche. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, we're going to talk about sex ed, specifically about abstinence-only sex ed. And I remember you telling me you've actually, so I've never met someone in person that went through abstinence-only sex ed. I remember you telling me you actually met someone went through abstinence-only sex ed. So what was that? What were they like first? Well, I mean, they were a totally normal person, first of all. Right. That's not what I meant. Sorry. I made it sound so weird. They're not monsters. Well, the, the way you asked them, what, yeah. what was wrong with them? No, they were totally normal. It was, you know, I, I was a biology major in undergrad. And this is that's where I met some of these folks who had different educational experiences when it came to sex ed. And so these are the people, same age as I am, growing up in different parts of the state or different states, and uh, folks who were in more rural areas, although this is, I'm painting with a broad brush, this is not everyone in a rural area, but some of them, all they got was abstinence-only sex education, which is don't have sex. Sex is bad. You know, wait until marriage. Here are all the terrible, awful things that can happen to you if you have sex. No no discussion of ways that you could do it more safely, no discussion of alternatives to actual sort of penetrative intercourse, right? There some of the conversations that, that we had, like, okay, if you want to enjoy time with somebody, like here are some other ways, uh, none of that. And so they just had a very different experience and, and it almost felt like the idea of sex was something that was like, like even thinking about sex was bad. It was very stigmatized. What was their relationship with it? Like, did they did they buy it, or did they were they you know what was their reaction to it? I think to a certain extent, they felt like they weren't told the things that they needed to know, and so some some of them were engaging in sexual activities way way younger because they, basically it was like, well, this is something bad, and you you, you tell, tell teenagers you know, not to do it. <laughs> teenagers, the, right? And sometimes the the result is that they they just do those things. Again, a lot of shame around just the concept of sex that it was something bad that you shouldn't be doing unless you were married, and it made it hard for them to open up and have conversations about things, whether it was with their parents or other adults, because it was something that they weren't supposed to be doing. So they, they were sort of limited in, in their access to resources. But even from a very anecdotal uh, evidence standpoint, they certainly didn't not have sex, right? From, from what you're describing. Oh, they, oh, they, yeah, no, they were having sex way earlier than I was. Yeah. So, I mean, that's definitely what I would think. So even though I've never met anyone who went through abstinence only, but that's definitely what I would expect to happen. Teenagers are, for lack of a better term, hormonal. 
And uh, they're not going to just listen to authority figures. They're going through a phase where they're trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to figure out like what the world is around them. And you telling them not to do something is not going to be an effective way to have them not to do something. So I was very fortunate. I found an expert on this topic. Uh, her name is Caitlin. Yes, very excited. Yeah. And uh, well, let me just have her introduce herself. Hi, my name is Caitlin Vicora. Um, I am a sex ed professional, which means that I get to work with school districts across the country um, on their sex education programs in schools. And so sometimes that looks like focusing on the classroom, um, creating an inclusive environment for LGBTQ students. Sometimes that looks like reviewing curricula around sex ed. And other times um, it also looks like helping kind of teachers and youth serving professionals to connect students to services. So this is Caitlin. And uh... I had a wonderful opportunity that I got to interview her about her experience and just her general knowledge about what sex ed and abstinence only sex ed is. And uh, we're going to, so this is a huge topic. So sex ed in general is a huge topic. Abstinence only sex ed by itself is also a huge topic. So we're actually going to split this into two episodes. Today, we're just going to talk about uh, the history of sex ed and what sex ed is. And then in the next episode, we'll do the more interesting exploring of what sort of impact this has on our, our country and what are the current policies in place right now regarding abstinence-only sex ed. So first, uh, I know we talked a little bit about it, but let's definitely have a professional tell us what abstinence-only sex ed is. Abstinence-only sex education can be defined as sex ed that's only promoting sexual abstinence outside of marriage. And so a lot of sex ed programs, of course, have abstinence as one of the options that young people can choose. And so um, one thing that we like to say is, you know, abstinence is the only 100% effective way to not get pregnant or not get an STI. But the difference between um, offering abstinence as an option and abstinence-only programs is that ab-only programs do not include information on, you know, sexuality, relationships, contraceptives, condoms, and how to protect yourself and plan for your future. You know, that's the difference is that it is only pushing abstinence versus allowing young people to choose from a range of options. So one thing that I that she mentioned that I want to comment on is like with all these abstinence only program, it's not don't have sex until you're an adult. It's specifically don't have sex until you're married, which is a whole different set of connotations to me. They're not worried about teenage sex in the sense that they're worried about preventing pregnancy. I think it's it's a very moral standpoint, typically, where these these programs are looking from. Yeah, I agree. It, there's definitely a implication, and maybe it's not even implication, it's sort of a, a core tenant, uh, that you shouldn't be having sex until you're married, which carries a lot of religious undertones to it. And, you know, for some people, marriage isn't something that they want to do. You know, they they may have a, a long-term life partner that they don't want to get married. So what are they, they're just like never going to have sex with that person? <laughs> like, I think to your point, it's not wait until you're ready for whatever consequences may come as a result of this. It's wait until you're married. And it also assumes a very heteronormative lifestyle, right? That like men and women are going to get married and men and women are the only people who should be having sex with each other, right? Like, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of the heteronormativity uh, in this abstinence only thing, I think. You probably picked this up too, but there was an undertone of sex as, as reproduction, which is why you need to wait until marriage. Which again, let's not dive into that right now. But I think you, I think you know um, what that undertone means, and I and I think that's another issue that it's this focus on 
having sex after you're married that that just places a lot of pressure on people to like oh in order to do this i need to get married and maybe maybe that's a whole other can of worms of issue like people getting married when they're teens or not even teens but getting married before they really know who they are as a person now this this is not to say that there aren't successful marriages where people marry young, they mature together, they grow together, and they have long, fruitful, totally enjoyable, happy, loving marriages, right? I'm, I know that happens. But I also know that we do a lot of maturing and growing from 18, even into our late 20s. And so if people are rushing in to marriage because they think this is a thing they need to do in order to be able to have sex. This could be leading to increased rates of divorce. I don't know. It just seems like a terrible strategy. It does sound like a terrible strategy. And we're going to play a second clip. This one is also about what abstinence-only sex ed is. It's basically teaching teaching about sex, but very much teaching about the dangers of having sex. So a lot of it is about pregnancy prevention, STI prevention, a lot of, you know, the scary STI pictures that I maybe you've seen before, I've heard about before. A lot of those are pushed in these types of programs. And so it's really all about this kind of fear mongering around sex and making sure that students know the dangers and the risks of having sex. And again, not providing the information to actually reduce the risk of pregnancy and STIs. I remember we had this conversation in road design where it's like, we know driving a car is dangerous, but we didn't just say, okay, let's just not drive cars. It's the same issue here. It's like, we are, we, there's certain risks to having sex, but their solution is, well, let's just not have sex, which is, again, imagine that argument on cars. Right. And on one hand, I will say I, as a parent, I appreciate the idea of wanting to encourage my kids and have an education that is encouraging my kids to to not engage in this behavior until they're ready, right? But I also want that education to include, this is how you minimize potential harms associated with this activity should you choose to engage in it whenever you choose to engage in it, right? So like we have kids go through driver's ed, we design our roads safer, we design our cars safer, we have law enforcement to hold people accountable if they don't drive safely. Wait to have sex. But if you do choose to have sex, use contraception, use birth control, all of these sorts of things, because we don't want you to get an STI. We don't want you to get pregnant before you're ready. We have these concepts that we apply to other issues. And it's it's frustrating to not see them, these same concepts applied to sex education. Yeah. And I, and I think this is, this is going to be a theme that we'll see throughout. It's not about eliminating the source. It's just about like, how do we reduce the harm? How do we prevent things from happening? How do we work with what we have instead of just saying, well, don't drive or well, you know, don't, don't have sex. Those are very impractical solutions. No, they're not even solutions. Those are just very impractical ideas. Um, so I didn't know too much about, you know, the history of sex ed or abstinence only sex ed. So I asked Caitlin, how do we get here? What is the history of abstinence only sex ed? My understanding of it is that it's really kind of a recent development of actually kind of teaching sex ed through schools. A lot of these community organizations have been doing a lot of this work outside of schools for decades, right? Um, And in particular, 
There are some flashpoint events that really kind of focus sex ed more so in the media. So, for example, you know, the AIDS crisis of the 80s and 90s, that was an area where we a lot of community organizations were doing a lot of sex education and HIV education. And now actually a lot of schools, I didn't mention the the numbers around HIV, but a lot of schools are requiring this HIV education to be a part of the sex ed education. And so, you know, there are these moments that really kind of bring sex ed back into focus um, for schools in particular. That is so true. Like a huge part of my sex ed was HIV and AIDS. Oh, absolutely. That was a core. Well, actually, so we did talk about HIV AIDS as part of our sex ed, but we actually had whole separate modules on HIV AIDS in addition to our sex ed, because there was a lot of push to educate people. Like at the time, people were concerned you could get AIDS if you shook someone's hand or if you stood too close to them, or if you kissed them, all these other things. And so a lot of education around how this was transmitted, which tied back to sex ed and sexual activity. Yeah, that was definitely a core component of my sex ed as well. Anyway, back to Caitlin for the political history of sex education in this country. But for abstinence only, it's basically been around for almost probably 25 years or so. So I think 1996 was the first abstinence-only program, and it was actually a part of the Social Security Act. Um, but yeah, it's Title V of the Social Security Act in 1996 is what established the program. And it has been pushing money since then. It's actually more than $2 billion of federal funding has been spent on abstinence-only programs. And so for Title V, at its peak, it was providing $75 million per year for abstinence only, specifically. And what that meant is that these programs had to really conform to this really restrictive eight-point definition of abstinence education, and it needed to meet those criteria in order to receive the funding. So so it's basically been happening since then. Um, but I will say there was kind of a, an interesting evolution in the last couple of years around abstinence only, in particular, actually, because of the Trump administration. And so, you know, over the past couple of years, a lot of the proponents of abstinence only education have been realizing that, you know, abstinence only education does not work. We have the research to back it up and says it doesn't work. Um, it does not do anything to re- reduce young people having sex, reduce pregnancy, reduce STIs. There's no evidence that these programs work at all. And so as that became more and more known to people, a lot of the public opinion was really swaying towards more comprehensive sex education, um, or at least you know providing, maybe not fully comprehensive, but at least providing options for young people. And so what they did is they rebranded. And so now a lot of instead of saying abstinence only, they will say sexual risk avoidance, risk avoidance, risk reduction. All of these are public health terms that they are now co-opting. This is like alternative fact level ingenuity where they just, yeah, let's just wash it down. And that is so smart. So smart. And, you know, this this idea of risk reduction, risk avoidance, again, is a public health idea. These are public health ideas that are used in like smoking cessation programs and other programs like that. That makes sense to have this type of like, you know, risk reduction, harm reduction, whatever. And so they are trying to legitimize it with this type of language. Uh, But again, it's the same program that doesn't work, but rebranded as sexual risk avoidance. I think I'm blowing your mind a little bit. <laughs> she did blow my mind like a lot with that. And it's such a, an interesting tactic. So when you want to convince people to do something, a program or whatever, if you use the language that public health folks use, you're not changing anything about the 
content, you're just changing how you describe it and how you sell it. You're basically bamboozling people into thinking that they're getting a higher quality or more comprehensive set of resources. Because when we in public health think about risk reduction, harm reduction, harm mitigation, all those things, it's all about making something that is risky less risky. But all they're doing with the rebranding of abstinence-only education is still saying, don't do the thing, which we know doesn't work. Yeah, and they're just packaging the same ineffective approach with a language that makes it sound nicer and, and easier for people to essentially ignore and overlook, which is what they want. Yeah, because like, of course, like, what person's going to be like, oh, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to avoid sexual risk. Like, obviously, like, again, they're using that terminology that is totally like research backed and legitimate in other areas of public health. Um, but the difference between like smoking and sex, for example, is that, yeah, of course, there's risks associated with having sex, but sex itself is a completely healthy, normal thing to have, even as a young person. Um, it's part of normal adolescent development. And, you know, so the difference is like, it's it's not risk reduction in that, like, this is a bad thing that they're doing and that they need to now, like, like smoking cessation, like, you know, reduce the harm. Like the actual having of sex itself is not harmful. Yeah. And I think it goes back to the fact that they're not actually trying to reduce risk. They're trying to reduce sex, which is a moral argument instead of a safety and scientific one. This is such a common tactic that comes from that side of the political spectrum. I won't say which side, but it comes from that side of the political spectrum. And the same thing with like pro-life, because it, it sounds so good on paper. Like, yeah, I'm pro-life. I'm like, yeah, who else? What else? I'm, I'm not pro-death, you know, like, but that's just a rebranding that they did because they're not actually pro-life in the sense that they don't care about life of people. They care about life of unborn fetuses. They're pro-birth. And once you give birth, they will then make you feel like a terrible person for needing social services for the child that you weren't able to not have, right? Or they expect you to give that child up for adoption, which, you know, I, I don't know. I've never been in that situation, but I imagine it would be terribly difficult. Yeah, like, but you have to you have to admit that's very smart of them to rebrand because they knew that it's not working anymore, but it's also... I, and, I, and I hate to admit this, like that rebranding will probably give this movement more steam because... Which is just going to cause more harm because we already know it doesn't work. It's it's an ineffective educational curriculum that we're now calling something else. Exactly. and Right. It's like a, the, the Albert Einstein quote, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Why people think continuing to tell people don't have sex and giving them no strategies to mitigate the harms is going to have any impact just boggles my mind. I don't understand why people think that that's going to be effective. It hasn't been effective, but let's keep doing the same redacted thing. Okay. Oops. Same. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> you can bleep that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Redacted. Um, but anyway, this is a case where we have data showing that it doesn't work. This is not the case like we think it won't work. No, we have data. Right. There've been evaluations. It's not anecdotes. Yeah, we have evaluations, but we're going to save that for our next episode. So this episode, we sort of went through the history and we went through what the definition of abstinence only. But next episode is where we're going to talk about the other aspect of this topic, which is the impact that it has and the current policies states have regarding their sex ed. So tune into our next episode where we will continue this discussion about abstinence only sex education. huge thank you and shout out to Caitlin Vacora for speaking with me on this episode and sharing her expertise. 
You can find her podcast between the pages on all major platforms, new episodes coming out September. You can also find the podcast Instagram page at between the pages pod. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the wonderful omnipresent essence of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH to stay up to date on new episodes, public health news, and more. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out to us if you think we missed an important element or suggest a future episode topic. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krifasi. And if you're really interested in gluten-free baking, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page, and you can find the link for that in the description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.